Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of The Informed Catholic. My name is Ned Jabbar. This is going to be episode 176 of 2020. So we're still in October, and it's now episode 176. And uh, before we begin, please subscribe and share to my podcast. Uh, it will be a great help to me and to others uh, who are listening. You know, uh, let Google Podcast, uh, Apple Podcast, um, CastBox, as well as uh, uh, Spotify and Anchor. I do my podcast through Spotify and Anchor, and it would let them know so they can distribute the podcast and others can find it and listen to it. Um, I do a lot of commentary. Uh, lately, I've been doing a lot of stuff on politics. Uh, since this is an election year, and it's basically about politics and faith, uh, which is right now very important because um, it's like G.K. Chesterton said, uh, when our Lord said, love your enemies uh, and love your neighbor because they're both the same people, and that is politics, loving your enemy and as well as your neighbor is politics, and it's something we all uh, have to understand. Uh, faith and politics uh, are not inseparable. Uh, we, uh, people of faith, uh, Catholics, Christians, Orthodox Christians, uh, have to mingle uh, in the world, and that means politics. Um, when our Lord said, you are in the world, but you are not of the world, that's politics. And uh, we have to deal with it. We can't uh, stick our heads in the sand. We cannot uh, look the other way. And no, uh, we we cannot simply stay out of um, society. You know, we are involved. Uh, when our Lord said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar and what belongs to God is God. Everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. And um, the Christian uh, has to be involved. Uh, St. Paul, when he was going to get flogged and uh, he mentioned to the Roman uh, officer that he is a Roman citizen. And when they inquired on him if he was a Roman citizen and they found that he was, he then, uh, standing in front of Governor Felix, in the, the book of Acts, he said, I appeal to Caesar. And the Roman governor said, you have appealed to Caesar, then to Caesar you shall go. I kind of like that line. It sounds like something out of Shakespeare, but it shows uh, St. Paul's knowledge about uh, the secular world and faith. Both are part of each other. Okay, we as Christians cannot separate ourselves from the world. It is important. Our duty is to, is to convert the world. That is our mission. Our Lord said the last thing before he ascended heaven, go into all the world, preach and teach the gospel to all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I am with you until the end of the age. So you see, we as Christians 
have to be involved. It is our duty to convert and to teach the world, to teach the world the gospel, to let the world know the truth. All right, not to be fanatics, not to go around forcing. Yes, a lot of people will point to the past history and bad behavior of Christians. Of course, there's going to be bad behavior of Christians. Of course, there's going to be failure. You know, the Gospels show us that. Uh, Peter tried to stop Christ from uh, going to Jerusalem and the Lord rebuked him and um, called him a Satan and said, you are a stumbling block to my mission. And and uh, Judas Iscariot betrayed him. The apostles abandoned him, including Peter and all the others, except for John, the Blessed Mother, and a few other people. See what I'm saying? It's... It, of course, there's going to be bad Christians. All right? Whenever you have human beings involved in any religion, there's going to be failure. And Christianity, in a sense, because of its, hum- its human nature, is no exception. But the, the message, the truth about who Jesus Christ is makes Christianity different from other religions. And different from other religions, it's not afraid of showing its members weakness and failings. That's what makes Christianity so different. Other religions don't necessarily like to do that. The Jewish faith shows the failings of its members. It shows David with his weaknesses. It shows... um, Jacob and his and his uh, Jacob, who became Israel, his failings, uh, the book of, of Exodus and uh, the other writings of Moses show the failings of the people of Israel. That that's what makes the Judeo Christian faith different from others. Is that the failings of the people is exception is is very unique. Other religions don't like to uh, show the failings. It's very interesting. But anyway, let's begin with a prayer. And then we're going to go into the article uh, by Christine Niles, Church Militant, on Amy Coney Barrett. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. Queen of the Rosary, pray for us. St. Joseph, Guardian of the Holy Church and Terror of Demons, pray for us. St. Thomas More, pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. St. Augustine, pray for us. And St. Michael the Archangel, pray for us and defend us from evil. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so let's begin this article. Amy Coney Barrett, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, is a good example of uh, of faith and uh, in action in a uh, a society. Uh, to me, she is a female Thomas More, Saint Thomas More. That's how I see her. She is really. Thomas More is one of my uh, uh, heroes. Uh, You know, he, um, and you've heard me talk about him before. He was a remarkable figure. Um, 
Originally, I mean, he was born in uh, Tudor, England at the time. He was born during that um, that war, War of the Roses, as they call it, because it was a battle between <clears throat> all the English society over the crown. And um, at that time in England, um, they... Um, as the the nobles were fighting over the crown, over who will will take over the crown, um, the middle class of England, the, the British, the English people, uh, had to continue with life, while the the powerful and the rich can uh, were 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 just lopping each other's heads, burning each other's castles, and trying to raise armies against each other so they so the one per, one of them can come on top as the 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 winner of the English crown um life in England for the middle class and the poor continued now what i mean by this is an interesting what happened there was a new rising middle class it was a middle class without any nobility without any noble blood, the the rich and powerful were selling their land, were selling their property, their homes to raise money so they can raise an army. And lo and behold, there was a new middle class. There were people who were actually coming from the bottom without any no uh, royal blood in them and they were rising up they were actually industrious and they, as they were rising up these people who had no education were making money and they were sending their kids to uh to be educated by monks to be taught how to read and write and those kids will rise will take over their parents business with an education, with an education, and they were like land, they were the new landlords, they were the new landowners, and they took what was neglected by the nobles, by the royal blood, and they made something out of it. Um, there was an interesting um, series called Pillars of the Earth, and it kind of described that. Because, uh, you know, there was the battle between the French and the English and there was English royalty again fighting. And what happened was it was the rising middle class that was industrious while the nobles were too busy trying to be nobles. And you see that. Well, Thomas More, long story short, Thomas More's family came out of that. And Thomas More's father... Uh, who was a, I think he came from a, a baker family. His father was the, the first generation that made it up into British government and became a judge. His son, um, Tom, uh, the son, Thomas More, the one we, we know, he rose up and he uh, was educated and he uh, became a lawyer and he, and, um, first he wanted to become a monk and his father knew the, you're not meant for religious life. And then he became a lawyer and he knew he studied everything about English law. You see, these people had nothing. They had no royalty. 
they have to work for what, you know, for, for who they are. They have to work to, to be, um, to survive in that society. Unlike the nobles where everything is handed over to them, Thomas More and his father had to work to stabilize themselves. And one of the things they did as good Catholics was they realized it was their duty to preserve their society. They knew how fragile their world was. Because the nobles could go crazy and fight over and fight and destroy everything. When Henry um, VII, um, uh, I'm sorry, um, the, the, the father of Henry, I, I think, you know, he was, he was the one that uh, defeated um, King Richard. Uh, you know, I think you know the story. Uh that part of Shakespeare, now is the winter of our discontent. He was supposed to have been the hunchback prince, uh, very deformed. Some say that might not, might not have been true, that Henry, that Shakespeare had to do that in order to discredit him. Um, the, the the world didn't care. England England just thought, okay, one guy, uh, somebody finally got the crown. All right, big deal. That's what most scholars say. It went unnoticed by a lot of people. It took a year before everybody realized, oh, we have a king. And, um, you know, uh, Thomas's more father now was already active in uh, British uh, government. You see, there was a British government running things even without a king. And this is the part where a lot of people have to understand is that this is what's so important about being a Catholic who contributes, a good Christian who contributes to a society. Our mission is to make sure that society remains stable. The rich and powerful can do whatever they want to do, but the truth is they're all, they're all out for their own selfish means and their own selfish ends. Okay, they, 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 power is all that matters to them. But the stability of society, the Christian is the salt and light of society, the salt and light of the culture. That's why Christ said, you are the light of the world and you are the salt of the earth. We are the ones, we represent him. The word of God means reason and logic and order, law and order. And that is what Christ is. The Lord, the word became flesh. And so the word uh, communicated himself to us. And so therefore, we as human beings made in the image and likeness of God are the law and order of the world. We are the stability of the world. We can't go hide in our churches or in our homes and keep our noses just in the Bible. What we read, we should go out and practice and put into practice. For the good, you know, that's why for the good of our fellow man, for the good of our fellow neighbor, for the good of the world. You know, th that's what those people, the old, those Christians throughout the century, they understood that. They understood what, the, what it meant. You know, it isn't, you know, yes, to be holy means you got to put a lot of the, a lot of it to practice. You got to put it to practice. And Amy Coney Barrett to me is, um, I think I imagine her, what Thomas More's daughter, they say she was more like his, uh, her father, Margaret More. 
She, um, she was smart. She was intelligent. She reflected her father more. Um, he had, he had sons, but his sons, you know, didn't really show as much interest in what he believed in, uh, or what, you know, how he was. She was the one who, who was more like, you know, like him. If you see the movie, The Man for All Seasons, Margaret was his favorite, Margaret Moore. And she, you know, she, she was more like him. She knew Latin. She knew the law. She knew how to read and write. It was more, Thomas More was very progressive. He taught his daughters how to read and write. That was very rare back then, even in England, uh, for a man to go so far as to teach his daughters how to read and write and educate his daughters like a man. And he. He, uh, the reason why is because he was often a lot doing government work. And, uh, what was interesting is that, well, if I'm off doing work, they might as well learn how to hand, uh, take care of everything without me and teaching them how to read and write was, a le uh, was one less worry for him about everything else. And they, you know, they handled the budget, they handled the house, they handled everything else. They dealt with you know, with all the other bills and, you know, all the other important things. That's, that's one of the things why I love about Thomas More, because he was a conservative, but he was a progressive conservative. There's a big difference there. Okay. A very big difference. All right. Um, I know I went a little long about this, but I wanted to sort of like go into to show you what, you know, what I'm about to read in the article. And it's very interesting. All right, so let, we'll finally get into the article now. Uh, schooling Dems, uh, News Campaign 2020, U.S. News by Christine Niles, Church Militant, October 14th, 2020. Barrett, deft in response to questioning. Democrats attempt to torpedo ju Judge Amy Coney Barrett's nomination have ultimately fallen flat. On the 3rd, and final day of questioning, the nominee, President Trump, has tapped to fill the vacancy left by the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Barrett sat for nearly nine hours of questioning, again, without notes. No notes. You've all seen that image, that meme uh, one Taylor Marshall had when she held her, her empty notepad and they um, they uh, put an image of the icon of mother and child, and uh, one showing she's uh, where they took the notepad and where they have her holding a crucifix, and another one where they had her um, uh, on the notepad. It said "God wins," and she's got that smile on her face. So you know, it became a very popular meme uh, in the last couple of days. Wow. Okay, so let's continue. Okay, without notes, the Catholic mother of seven at times more resembled a teacher patiently explaining the basics of law and judicial philosophy to students than a peer speaking to equals. Observers saw a different Barrett this time from the wide-eyed, at times flustered, nominee of 2017 when she endured grilling of um endured uh, endure the grilling for a seat on the seventh u s circuit 
sorry, noise, car outside, U.S. Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, um, the Barrett of 2020 with three years on the federal bench, having experienced the anti-Catholic hostility of her prior confirmation hearings, having witnessed the public um, crucifixion of Justice Brett Kavanaugh, came before the Senate panel with a noticeable toughness and calm reserve. She knew what to expect. I mean, the first time around, you got her, you know, you got her like a, a deer in headlights. All right. The humiliation. Remember the Feinstein, your dogma lives loudly in you. And um, uh, I think it was Durbin uh, who who said, what's an Orthodox Catholic? Because she describes herself as an Orthodox Catholic. You know, the constant uh, attack on her, the humiliation she went through, but she endured it, um, you know, s slightly bruised, you could say, uh, publicly bruised by the, by the humiliation that they put her through. But she knew better now what to expect. And she also, she made it through, but Kavanaugh, Brett, uh, Kavanaugh went through it, uh, went through it a lot more worse, maybe because he was a man. Or maybe because um, Feinstein realized that when she said the dogma lives loudly in you and uh, the other uh, senator who mocked her describing herself as an Orthodox Catholic realized that they made a mistake. But we're going to find out that uh, they, since they have nothing else to get her on, they still want to focus on her religion. So let's continue. Uh, nothing the Democrats threw at her could stick. When Connecticut Democrat Richard Blumenthal tried to catch Barrett in an apparent double standard by comparing her uh, written um, retenance on the 1965 birth control case, Griswold versus Connecticut, to her forthright opinion that Brown versus Board of the Education was correctly decided, the 48-year-old judge explained the disparity. The, the reason why I expressed a view on Brown to uh, Senator Graham is that I think that I have said in print, either in my scholarly work or judicial opinions, is fair game, she said. And I have expressly said in the past in the original in, in the originalism lecture that I have given repeatedly that Brown was correctly decided. Griswold, in contrast, has not been a case Barrett has written on. Its reasoning on substantive due process is also controversial and widely criticized by legal scholars. Let me explain. I have no idea what these cases are, all right, since I am not into law, but I'm reading it the best I could. So forgive me if I kind of jumble up a few legal terms. Griswold, in contrast, has not been a case Barrett has written on. Okay, I'll just read this one. Its reasoning on substantive due process is also controversial and widely criticized by legal scholars. At times, she pushed back. Senator Dick Durbin the Democrat from Illinois who famously asked her in 2017 for a definition of Orthodox Catholic insinuated that she may be racist simply for failing to answer a hypothetical. 
does the president have the authority to unilaterally deny the right to vote to any person based on their race? Asked Durbin. Barrett cited the Equal Protection Clause and the Fourth and Fifteenth Amendments to make it to make clear that no one can discriminate on the basis of race. Okay, I understand that part. Okay, all right, that's very simple. It doesn't take, uh, I think, a legal, a legal education to understand that. Seeming not to grasp her response, Senator Durbin pressed on again when asked whether or not the president has any authority to unilaterally deny that right to vote for a person based on race or even gender. Are you saying you can't answer that question? She did answer the question. Senator, I just referenced the 14th and 15th Amendments, the same one that you just repeated back to me that do prohibit discrimination on the basis of race and voting, said Barrett patiently. I don't know how else I can say it. The Constitution contains provisions that prohibit discrimination on the basis of race in voting. I understood him. I understood that very clearly. All right, let's look at this clip. All right, let's see. But whether a president can unilaterally deny, you're not going to answer yes or no. Well, Senator, you've asked a couple different questions about what the senator, uh, what the president might be able to unilaterally do. And I think that I really can't say anything more than I'm not going to answer hypotheticals. It strains originalism. If the clear wording of the Constitution establishes a right and you will not acknowledge it. Well, Senator, it would strain the canons of conduct, which don't permit me to offer off-the-cuff reactions or any opinions outside of the judicial decision-making process. It would strain Article 3, which prevents me from deciding legal issues outside the context of cases and controversies. And as Justice Ginsburg said, it would display disregard for the whole judicial process. <laughs> she quoted Ginsburg. Beautiful. Wow. And he, and he answered it because he pointed to the article, the 14th and 15th Amendment, which she herself also pointed to the article. So he answered the question himself. All right. And he wants her to answer hypothetical and she can't answer a hypothetical because it's, the law does not permit a hypothetical uh, questioning. She, in interpretation, she answered it herself. You know, and he also gave, gave his own answer. When asked again whether she could give a simple yes or no to Durbin's question, Barrett said, as she has consistently said throughout the three days of hearings, that she would not answer hypotheticals. It strains originalism if the clear wording of the Constitution establishes a right and you will not acknowledge it, said a dissatisfied Durbin. And then here, word, word, word for word, well, Senator, it would strain the canons of conduct which don't permit me to offer off-the-cuff reactions or any opinions outside the judicial uh, decision-making process. Barrett re uh, retorted, it would strain Article 3, which prevents me from deciding legal issues outside the context of cases and controversies. And, as Justice Ginsburg said, it would display disregard for the whole judicial process. Durbin quickly changed the subject. 
she is a Thomas More. She's a female Thomas More. I mean, she's exactly like him in every way. He was a family man and she's a, a mom. She's a family woman. I mean, she is a, a modern day Thomas More. Wow. Minnesota Democrats, Amy Colbert, insinuated dishonesty on Barrett's part by continuing a line of reasoning begun by uh, Vice President contender Kamala Harris the day before when Barrett said she could not recall whether she was aware of President Trump's statements claiming he would appoint high court justices who would overrule Obamacare. All right, here's... Um, Here's a clip with Kamala Harris. Well, I imagine you were surrounded by a team of folks that helped prepare you for this nomination hearing. I have did had, they, yes. Did they, but let me finish if you don't mind. Oh, I'm so did sorry. They, and so you then became aware of the president's statement. Is that correct? Let's see, Senator Harris. In the context of these conversations, I honestly can't remember whether senators framed the questions in the context of President Trump's comments. Perhaps so. I think from my perspective, the most important thing is to say that I have never made a commitment. I've never been asked to make a commitment. And I hope that the committee would trust in my integrity not to even entertain such an idea and that I wouldn't violate my oath if I were confirmed and heard that case. So just so I'm clear, and then we can move on. Are you saying that you are now, before I said it, aware or not aware that President Trump made these comments about who he would nominate to the the United States Supreme Court? All right, Senator Harris, what I was saying, I thought you initially framed the question as whether I was aware before this nomination process began. And the answer to that question... If you are aware, were you aware before this hearing began? So you're changing, you're asking me now whether I was aware before the hearing began? As a follow-up question, I am, yes. Um, And what I said was that when I had my calls with Democratic senators, this question came up, and I don't recall, but it may well have been that they referenced those comments in the course of those calls. Even if so, that wasn't something that I heard or saw directly by reading it myself. Senator Leahy asked you earlier today, but I think it bears repeating. Do you think it is important for the American people to believe that Supreme Court justices are independent and fair and impartial? And that is a yes or no answer, please. Yes, Senator Harris. A number of my colleagues have asked you today whether you would recuse yourself from cases on the Affordable Care Act. You did not directly answer their questions and instead you described a process by which that would um, work or happen. And so my question is, Isn't it true that at the end of that process, regardless of that process, that it would be you who ultimately would make the decision about whether or not you would recuse yourself? That is true, and I can't have you elicit a commitment from me about how I would make that decision in advance. That would be wrong. (laughs) Even Kamala Harris tried to get her there. Okay, let's look at it again here. All right. I just find it hard to understand that you were not aware of the uh, of the president's statements, said Colbert, engaging in more back and forth on her knowledge of Trump's objection to the Affordable Care Act, ACA. And then she answered, I think that the Republicans have kind of made that clear, Barry replied. It's been part 
of the public discourse? Is the answer yes, then? Senator Colbert, all these questions you're suggesting that I have uh, animus or that I cut a deal with, the president, uh, well, deal with the president, Barrett said, calling out her motives. And I was very clear yesterday that that isn't what happened. The day before when Colbert tried to trap her on the issue of Roe versus Wade and Barrett refusal to call it a super super president, president, I'm sorry about that, and thus beyond reversal, Barrett calmly cited left-leaning Harvard Law professor Richard Fallon. Roe is not a uh, is not a super precedent because calls for its overruling have never ceased but that doesn't mean that it should be overruled it just means that it doesn't fall on the small handful of cases like Mulberry versus Madison and Brown versus Board uh, that no one questions anymore When Delaware Democrat Chris Coons tried to tie Barrett to controversial opinions of her mentor, Justice Scalia, Barrett deftly turned the question around on Coons. I hope that you're not, that you aren't suggesting that I don't have my own mind or that I couldn't think independently or that I would decide, uh, decide that or let me just see what Justice Scalia has said. But this is, but this in the past, you know, about this in the past. Let me read it one more time. Sorry. I hope that you aren't suggesting that I don't have my own mind or that I couldn't think independently or that I would decide that, oh, let me just see what Justice Scalia has said about this in the past, she said, putting him on the defensive because I assure you, I have my own mind. <laughs> I, I once again, she is a Thomas More, definitely. Uh, wow. I mean, she knows how to answer. She knows the law. The first time around, yeah, it makes sense that you don't know what to expect. You've never been through that, that sort of like, you know, hot seat where they're attacking you left and right, trying to, to discredit you from doing work. And she made it through. She made it through with, with you know, um, I'm sure it was traumatizing at first, uh, but then she understood what she was going through. And then she, you know, it's like, you know, you got to go through that trial by fire. And then next time around, you know what to expect. And this time the situation is a little different because of the political climate. Um, we, you know, definitely she, you know, she, you know, let's face it. What man doesn't love a smart, tough woman? I mean, you have to admit it, that just, you know, you you have to love her for her mind and she is a tough person. And you look at her and you see her family and you admire her even more. And the fact that she happens to be a woman of faith, she's not just a smart woman, but she's a woman of faith. And that really uh, makes her uh, admirable, admirable and attractive, uh, in a a very respectful way, because you, you... you have to be, uh, you have to admire her and respect her for this because look at her family, look at her uh, her career, look at her position. She can balance both. She can do both, you know? 
She can do both. It's amazing. And, you know, you have to admire her for that. All right, let's continue. Coney also attempted to draw out a uh, Coons. I'm sorry, Coons also attempted to draw her, draw, uh, draw out her opinion on the contra, uh, contraception, asking whether she thinks Griswold was rightly decided. And she answered, I think Griswold is very, very, very unlikely to go anywhere. She said, I think it's an academic question that wouldn't arise. And it's something that I can't, uh, a pine on, uh, particularly because it does it does lie at the base of substantive due process doctrine, which does continue to be lit, uh, lit, litigated in the courts today. And of course, if he's going to continue, are you unwilling to say that at least Griswold is not wrong? Coons asked in another attempt, and she answered, "I think Griswold isn't going anywhere." Unless your plan on passing a law prohibiting couples or peoples from using birth control, said Barrett, because it seems unthinkable that any legislator would pass such a law. I think the only reason that it's even worth asking that question is to lay a, a predict for whether Roe is rightly decided. <laughs> you see, he's they're trying to get her on her faith. And... She's um, she's really she's navigating waters. It's like that mind that mind trap game, you know. Like you have to navigate to the waters to avoid, uh, like you know, your your foot, you know, tapping into a mind you know, to to explosion. It's a trap. It's like it's almost like those 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 early eighties video games. She's navigating through it, and he's trying to get her to say that birth control because they know she's a Catholic. So they're trying to get her to say it. She's not going to go there. She's saying that this is, she's threw it, she threw it back at him that this is something that has to be done through legislators. And that's what she's telling. That's what she had to educate them on is that she's a judge. She can't have an opinion. They want her to give an opinion. So then therefore she's, they got her in a trap on, in their net and she's saying that she can't give her own opinion because it's wrong if a judge gives their own opinion. This is the hardest thing. I mean, I have to admit, it's very, it's very difficult, but she knows this, this is her field. This is what she loves, the law. And she's a judge. They want her to go on her personal opinion. She can't touch it with her own personal opinion. She could only navigate through the law and what, and what she's supposed to do as a judge. And they're trying to get her away from there. They're trying to pull her up. She has to walk the straight and narrow road. And, they, and they're trying to make her stumble and fall to the, to the right or to the left. Very interesting. All right. Um, let's look at this uh, clip here. All right. Let's check out this. This is Senator Howley questioning Supreme Court. Judge Barrett, good to see you again. Are you aware of any active litigation challenging the constitutionality of Griswold versus Connecticut? I am not. Are you aware of any litigation in recent decades challenging the constitutionality of Griswold versus Connecticut? Um, I am not. Are you aware of a, any legal movement out there to challenge the constitutionality of Griswold versus Connecticut? 
I am not, although Senator Hawley, as I said to Senator Coons, I'm certainly not aware of anybody trying to make the argument that a legislature should prohibit the use of birth control. Um, but as you know, Griswold does lie at the base of the doctrine that very much is challenged in federal court. Here's my point. I was seven years old when Judge Robert Bork came before this body. I don't remember any of that. I wasn't <laughs> watching it as a seven-year-old. But uh, what we saw, I think the, the legacy of, of the Bork hearings continue to reverberate. Uh, his name has become a verb, the borking of nominees. I think what we've seen today is an attempted borking of Judge Amy Barrett. The problem is they don't have anything in your record that they could use to so badly misconstrue to suggest that you're somehow going to fundamentally change America that now they have to attribute to you the worst readings and most draconian misinterpretations of Justice Scalia. So we take Scalia's record, we distort that, and then we attribute it to you. So let me just come back to your relationship with Justice Scalia. I was under the impression that you were a different person than Justice Scalia and that you had, in the, your own words, your own mind. Is, is that fair to say? That is fair to say. Is it fair to say that you are an independent woman and an independent jurist and an independent professional and also, by the way, a pretty darn good lawyer, and you'll make up your own mind on the decisions cases, controversies that come before you to the Supreme Court of the United States. Is that fair to say? Yes. I think maybe then we can put to rest this attempt to constantly leverage the worst interpretations of Justice Scalia's philosophy, misrepresentations, and attribute them all to you as if you are the same person. Frankly, I think it is demeaning and insulting. And I'm glad that you pointed that out in, in response about your independence at the last question. Let me ask you um, about another set of questions, just briefly, you had this morning. Senator Leahy asked you about the Foreign Emoluments Clause, which is in Article 1, Section 9, Paragraph 8. He asked you whether it was best characterized as an anti-corruption clause. You might remember that in terms of foreign influence and foreign interference. And then he referenced the president and, and various allegations about foreign influence. I, since he asked you about it, and since he asked about foreign influence in government, I, I think it's only fair that that I ask whether, hypothetically speaking, just hypothetically, if there were, let's say, a vice president of the United States who hypothetically had an adult son, who hypothetically worked for a foreign oligarch, who then sold access to his father, the vice president, and his father then intervened in a case to make sure that that oligarch wasn't prosecuted, hypothetically, would that violate, would that constitute the kind of foreign corruption that the Constitution's concerned about? I can't answer hypotheticals. Well, I thought you might say that. Um, and I'm glad you don't and won't, because who knows, that case may come before you. But um, I think it's a fair set of questions to ask. Let me ask you about something different. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, passed by Congress in 1996, yesterday, Justice Thomas issued a, a dissent uh, from a denial of certiorari in a case called the Malware Bites case. Now, I bet you haven't had a chance to see his... I was just about to say, please don't ask me about it, Senator Hawley, because I didn't have a chance to read anything. Well, let me, let me read to you just a, a, a few parts of it. It's, it's, it's quite significant, I think. Here's from the opening paragraph. When Congress enacted the statute, meaning Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, most of today's major internet platforms did not exist. And in the 24 years since, we have never interpreted this provision, we meaning the Supreme Court. But many courts have construed the law broadly to confer sweeping immunity on some of the largest companies in the world. He's talking about the big tech companies. And he quite methodically, over 24 pages, or I'm sorry, 10 pages, goes on to set out the ways in which 
courts at the behest of these tech companies have dramatically rewritten Section 230, changing its liability standards. He talks about changing the, the distinction between publisher and distributor liability, uh, changing the immunity shield, uh, changing uh, the, the narrow liability uh, shield, uh, extending 230 to protect companies from a broad array of traditional product defect claims. He says, it's, it's quite a thorough statement. Here's my question to you. You haven't read this. I don't think you've had a Section 230 case. I haven't. So in general, not, not about his dissent from denial, but in general, what are the dangers of the Supreme Court or any court rewriting a statute, departing from the text that Congress or a legislature, a lawmaking body, departing from the text they have written, that, that has been adopted, presented and adopted? What are the dangers in that if a court departs from that and substitutes its own judgment, whether it's done in one opinion over a series of years? Um, so as, as you've posed the question, without respect to Section 230, just in general, the danger of a court doing that is to subvert the will of the people. You represent the people, as you know, has been pointed out over the course of the hearing, judges are not elected and they have life tenure and can't be voted out of office. So if judges misconstrue statutes or bend them to the judge's idea of what would be good public policy, then it deprives the people of the chance to express the policies that they want through the democratic process. And the effect can be cumulative, can it? I mean, you can start with a, a change to the statute, a, a, a rewrite of one provision of the statute that then becomes precedent, and then when the court revisits this case later revisits the issue later, then they expand that and do a little more rewriting. And pretty soon, five or 10 or 15 years later, you're with something that has been so heavily blue penciled, so to speak, that it, it, it doesn't bear much resemblance at all to the original statute. I mean, that's a danger of courts continual, continuously substituting their own judgment. Is that fair to say? That can happen. So, I, and I, let me just say my opinion, not yours. I think it's pretty clear that has happened with Section 230. I think Justice Thomas does an outstanding job here of laying out why that's the case. Let me ask you in, in a related vein, Justice Holmes, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said in, in the famous Lochner case, in his famous dissent in that case over a century ago, he said the 14th Amendment does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics. Do you agree with that statement? Well, what do you think he was getting at with that? So. Justice Holmes' famous dissent in Lochner, which was later the position um, adopted by the court, is that you know courts shouldn't pour their ideas of good economic policy into the 14th Amendment to stand in the way of policies that the legislatures enact, for example, on questions of maximum hours for bakery workers or minimum wages and those kinds of things. You mentioned economic policy. Talk just a little bit about how a court could substitute its own views of on economic policy for those of a law enacting body, the legislature or of Congress. Sure. Well, in that era, you know, in, in the Lochner era, and then we saw it also um, in the cases um, that preceded the switch in time, uh, the court was standing in the way, I guess, in Lochner itself, in the way of reforms for workers that legislatures were enacting. And so if, say, one had a preference for free trade or if one had a preference for having no minimum wage or having a minimum wage, to hold such a statute that did the opposite of your policy preference 
unconstitutional because it didn't comport with your idea of the best economic policy would be to thwart the will of the people without warrant in the Constitution. Are, are, are there dangers in courts acting as, uh, let me press this by saying, mo most judges are not economists, I suppose some may be, but most judges are not economics experts. Are there, are there dangers in general with courts acting as economic policy makers, deciding economic policy, uh, making economic judgments? I mean, is that something that, that courts should be wary of as outside their area of expertise? Well, I am certainly not an economist. Um, I think courts are expert in interpreting law. You know, we've been trained in law schools, and that's what we're good at, and that's what we should stick with. I raise these concerns, and I raise them in conjunction with Section 230, because it seems to me that in the closely related antitrust context, we have seen over a period of many years courts substitute their economic judgment in many cases for what the words of statutes actually say and what perhaps the fairest interpretation of statutes might actually be. And whether it's Section 230 or the antitrust laws, one effect of this is to see growing concentrations of power in this country economically that I think are very significant threats to the ongoing operation of our democracy, to the basic ability of, of the people uh, to control the levers both of the economy and of culture and of government. And I'm afraid I think that courts have some role in this in much the way that Justice Thomas suggested in his dissent from denial yesterday. And I think it's hard to ignore it in the antitrust context as well. So I won't ask for your view on this because these are cases, these are issues that you very uh, may well be called upon uh, to weigh in on. I hope that you are. But I hope that you will, I hope that you will give uh, these issues consideration and the, the, the I think, very well-taken warning of Justice Holmes in Lochner. Uh, I, I think perhaps that insight has been lost sight of in, in many cases by both Republican appointees and Democrat appointees over many years on the Supreme Court in a variety of areas. Let me transition to, to one other area of law that's very important, back to the, to the First Amendment and to the free exercise of religion. You had a, an interesting free exercise case recently. You were on the panel. You didn't write the decision. This is the Pritzker case. Illinois Republican Party versus Pritzker decided on September 3rd of this year, so it's it quite recent, it was just last month. This is a case in which the governor of the state uh, was sued because in the words now of the opinion I'm quoting, his executive order relating uh, to COVID lockdowns, quote now, exhibits special solicitude for the free exercise of religion. And the case, in a roundabout way, challenged that special solicitude for churches and religious organizations. You joined the opinion in fall, you, you didn't dissent. Can you say why you joined the opinion and, and why, you, why you think that the content here is, is right, why the holding is correct? Sure. So in that case, the Illinois Republican Party said that because the executive order in Illinois had given an exception for the free exercise of religion, for example, so that people could gather at churches or synagogues or mosques, um, that that same special protection had to extend to the Illinois Republican Party and indeed by logical extension to everyone so that the whole order would fall because religion couldn't be singled out for special treatment and that that right to free speech, free assembly, etc., um, that, that it was under First Amendment doctrine a content-based distinction that could not survive. And what that opinion said about that is that it was permissible for the governor of Illinois to carve out an exception for free exercise 
and that doing so didn't compel the government to extend the same protection to everyone. As Judge, as Judge Wood said you know, very well in that opinion, um, trying to accommodate a right explicitly mentioned in the Constitution and the First Amendment did not put the COVID order in jeopardy. And the, the opinion is, is very firm on this point. You quote from the Hosanna Tabor case, which you and I discussed a little bit yesterday, unanimous case from the Supreme Court. This is the opinion quoting from that case. The First Amendment itself gives special solicitude to the rights of religious organizations. That's the Hosanna Tabor case. This opinion that you joined goes on to say there can be no doubt that the First Amendment singles out the free exercise of religion for special treatment. Rather than being a mechanism for expressing views, as the speech, press, assembly, and petition guarantees are, the free exercise clause is content-based, as you just said. The mixture of speech and music and ritual and readings and dress that contribute to the exercise of religions the world over is greater than the sum of its parts. In other words, what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, what I understand the panel to be saying is the free exercise of religion isn't reducible to the free exercise of speech. It isn't reducible to the free exercise of assembly. Those are important rights. Those are also protected by the First Amendment. But the free exercise of religion protects something different and, and more. It, it protects the rights of religious people and religious organizations of all backgrounds the world over. But of course, in this country, for Americans, uh, it, it protects them and gives them special solicitude under the First Amendment. Have I, have I got that correct? Yes, to be clear, I can't take credit for the eloquent language that was Judge Wood's language on the panel opinion that I did join. Um, yes, but the point that the panel opinion makes is that the free exercise of religion is singled out for its own protection in the First Amendment rather than being a subset of speech. And the position that the Illinois Republican Party took in that case would have been more putting everything under the speech umbrella. And, and why do you think... That is an important point of constitutional law. If I could ask you to put on your, I'm not asking you how to comment on cases, but if you could put on your constitutional scholar hat, why is it in, in, why is it significant that the First Amendment gives special solicitude, as this decision says, as the Supreme Court has repeatedly said, special solicitude to the rights of religious associations, religious believers, religious worship and exercise? I think that case itself, the Illinois Republican case shows why this distinction can matter because as our panel held in that case, the outcome may have been different if we had been treating it solely as a free speech question because the court has said that content-based distinctions, you know, under the First Amendment get strict scrutiny and it can be hard to satisfy. But so the case might have come out differently had it only been speech at issue. The case came out as it did because free exercise was also at issue. I think in, in this time when we see many challenges to the rights of religious organizations, uh, their ability to meet freely, and where frankly we see many instances around the country where religious organizations are treated, religious churches, uh, synagogues, mosques are treated less favorably than secular counterparts, whether that's casinos or, or gyms uh, or, or, or uh, liquor stores, you name it. But so many different executives around this country have chosen to single out churches for disfavor, whether it's in the COVID context, which is what this case is about, or another context. I think that the, uh, the holding of this opinion is very, very significant. And the Supreme Court's doctrine on this, on this line of cases about the, the rights and the, and the special solicitude, in the court's words, for religious organizations is very, very significant. Um, I'll just uh, conclude by saying, uh, Judge Barrett, that uh, it's been a privilege to get to speak with you these last couple of days. 
Uh, congratulations to your family and to Jesse. And uh, I think you have been, uh, you, your, your answers to these questions have been really, really exceptional. Um, I, I have been extremely impressed, and I was impressed to begin with. And I just want to put a finer point on something that, that Senator Sass said earlier. He said, you know, you, you exercise your rights of assembly and free exercise and free speech when you were a faculty member. We've talked about that at length, various positions you took. And he pointed out there's nothing wrong with that. You shouldn't be penalized for it. I just want to agree with the chairman that, that I think uh, there's nothing wrong with confirming to the Supreme Court of the United States a devout Catholic pro-life Christian. And it will be my privilege to vote for you. Thank you. Thank you, Judge Barrett. Wow. And did you see that part where they focused on that part of the Constitution of freedom of religion, that it was something that has to stand on its own and it cannot be violated because the founders really, they the fact that it's pointed out freedom of religion along with freedom of speech, you know, freedom of speech, but it itself has to stand out because it's a fundamental, important right. You know, they put it there with freedom of assembly, freedom of speech and expression, and freedom of religion. The fact that it's written in there, it's not something that's thrown in with uh, a freedom of expression, free speech, that it's by itself an important clause. It has something very important. And the fact that the founders express it in the constitution is very important this i mean the fact that she didn't she didn't um the eloquently the if you go back and listen it's very i think it's very beautiful i think this is fantastic the line of questioning led missouri republican josh howley to ask are you aware of any active legislation challenging the constitution of griswold this is going back to the whole thing about i guess uh birth control Griswold versus Connecticut. I am not, she said. Are you aware of any legislation in recent decades challenging the constitutional constitutionality of Griswold versus Connecticut? I am not. Are you aware of any legal movement out there to challenge the constitutionality of Griswold versus Connecticut? I am not. Here's my point, said the Missourian. I was seven years old when I when Judge Robert Burke. I rem, uh, Robert Burke was the. Uh, um, Biden was especially vicious about this. I mean, he, uh, him and Kennedy, they both went after this fellow uh, really viciously. Judge Robert Burke came before this body. What we saw, I think, the legacy of the Burke hearing continued to reverberate, uh, reverberate, <laughs> sorry, his name has become a verb, the Burking nominee. I think what we have seen today is the attempt, the attempted burking of Judge Amy Barrett. While Republicans had braced themselves for, for a nuclear confirmation battle over the crucial seat, Wednesday evening saw a quite uh, non-controversial close to the three-day proceeding with a cordial exchange between Republican Lindsey Graham and Democrats Dick Durbin and Blumenthal. None of the punches of, of the Democrats through, uh, that the Democrats threw landed. And the GOP remains confident it has the votes to confirm. To paraphrase T.C. Eliot line, the confirmation battle ended not with a bang, but with a whimper. That part there about the, 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 the faith was very important. 
I think it, it's beautiful that it was pointed out that that part of the Constitution of freedom of religion is something the Democrats need to hear. It's an important part. It's a, it's an important part of the Constitution about people to meet and assemble and worship. And this is something that a lot of Democrats don't like and they have a lot of trouble with. Wow. I mean, I think it's I, I think this this is um this is great. I have something else coming up, uh, an article uh about the whole thing, so we're not done yet. Okay. All right, this is from just the news. Um it's uh, I picked it up the other day online. Feinstein caught on hot mic saying Barrett's pro-life reliefs come with her religion. All right. So let's look at this. The California Democrats said to the judicial nominee in 2017, the dogma lives loudly within you. This is immortalized. I think Feinstein regrets she ever said that. During two days of questioning, before the Senate Judiciary Committee, Supreme Court nominee Judge Amy Coney Barrett was grilled about a number of issues, including abortion. All right. And um, continues. But Democrats who claim Barrett could could well support overturning Roe versus Wade with uh, legalized abortion in the U.S. tiptoed around the nominees of religion. Barrett, a mother of seven is an avowed Catholic with deep faith in God. Yet a hot microphone caught California Senator Dianne Feinstein, the ranking Democrat on the committee, talking about Barrett's faith. She's been pro-life for a long time, Feinstein can be heard saying. So I suspect with her, it is deeply personal and comes with her religion. Now here's a tweet Sent to Feinstein hot mic talking about Judge Amy Coney Barrett. She's been pro-life for a long time, so I suspect with her it's it is deeply personal and comes with her religion. Huh. That's uh so she um oh well payback uh payback is serious. I think this is uh the drop the mic moment for Feinstein. She should have dropped it. <laughs> Feinstein eighty seven also cited Barrett's religion when the Notre Dame law professor was nominated in 2017 for a seat in the U.S. Court of Appeals, 7th, 7th Court. The dogma lives loudly within you, Feinstein said at the time. Barrett told senators then, as she had did again this week, that while she is a, a faithful Catholic, her religious beliefs would not affect her judicial decision. Democrats pressed Barrett about Roe versus Wade and about anti-abortion statements she had signed in the past, but steered clear of her faith. It was Republicans who brought that issue up several times. You're a Catholic, South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, chairman of the committee, said to Barrett, this is the first time in American history that we've nominated a woman who is unashamedly pro-life and embraced her faith without apology, but she is going to to the court. Senator Josh Howley, Missouri Republican, also brought up her faith, 
saying that there is nothing wrong with confirming to the Supreme Court of the United States a devout Catholic pro-life Christian. Barrett, for, for her part, said in one of the uh, her answers that she did not think that Roe versus Wade was so settled as to be considered untouchable, super, uh, super precedent, such as that word again, as for example, in the 1954 Supreme Court decision in Brown versus Board of Education that struck down racial segregation in public schools. I'm answering a lot of questions about Roe, which I think indicate that Roe doesn't fall in that category. Barrett said Tuesday in a response to questions about this case from Senator Amy Colbert. Um, and and scholars across the supreme spectrum say that that doesn't mean Roe should be overruled, but dis, uh, disruptively it, it means it's not a case that everyone has accepted and doesn't call for its overruling. Twitter's hit Feinstein for her, her hot mic com- comments since when is wanting to protect human life strictly religious, wrote one person. They just can't help themselves. It's incomprehensible to them that someone could be pro-life without being religious, wrote another. Ha <laughs> ha, wow. That was interesting. Let's see. Let's see if we can get this uh, this incident here that uh, that Feinstein, I'm sure, regrets. Let's see. All right, hold on. She's been pro-life for a long time. Hold on. All right, let me play that one more time. So you see, it's an issue with her, and they and they 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 have to get her on that, and this is this is it. I mean, people, listen what people say here. They just can't help themselves. It's incomprehensible to them that someone could be pro-life without being religious, wrote another. This is this is all on Twitter. Uh, Twitter went on like this. Since when is wanting to, uh, to protect human life strictly religious, wrote one person. They just can't help themselves. It's un- incomprehensible to them that someone could be pro-life without being religious, wrote another. You know what? That's a very good question. I, I don't know why I never thought of it myself. Why can't one, a one uh, be pro-life without being religious? You know, I mean, it's it's. I think, I think this is a, a very good uh, argument here. It's a very good argument. And I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to see that this is um, that this is something that uh, that people are, are are finally starting to ask. All right, hold on. I think I have one more article. You know, uh, it's it's obvious that there is hostility towards religion. The Democrats 
have been infiltrated. You know, and I and I know I've listened. I've talked about this book, the um, the Devil and Karl Marx. I'm also listening by the, uh, to an audible by the same author called Dupes, and it shows that the progressive is very easy to manipulate because uh, a lot of them they seem to have a religious problem. They have a problem with morality. They have a problem with excesses. They like, they want excesses. They want excesses of, of certain liberties, especially when it comes to sexuality, especially when it comes to government. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the thing. Maybe because in a sense, government is easier for them uh, to believe in than it is to God. Maybe because it's a physical uh, structure, uh, a physical uh, a, a process, not just I'm talking about the building, but I'm talking about with the courts and everything else. Maybe this is the only way they believe they can reach out to God, the government. And that in itself is very dangerous. Well, anyway, I have here, this is a, a YouTube, uh, New York rabbi begs for President Trump to help with the Jewish community. And let's look at this. All right. Hey, Handler. Um, are you aware of what Governor Cuomo just said an hour ago? Yes, I, I, I saw the information that you cannot have more than 10 people in shul. Um, what's happening right now is we are being subjected to a soft pogrom. It's called the slicing the salami technique. Every day they slice another slice and they push us to the wall and they bully us. I don't think that the Haskanan and many of the Rabbonim are aware of what's going on. Rabbi Yitzchak David Smith is aware and he made a video and warned us about it. So I'm going to explain what's going on. But first, I want to start off by making an appeal to the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, who's always been nice to Jews, and to his Attorney General, Mr. Barr. We have no representation here in New York State. We have no protection. We have the governor, who's a mass murderer, who has killed over 11,000 people in nursing homes. There's no argument about that. He did it intentionally. He was warned that if he put sick people in nursing homes who have COVID, they would die. And he threatened the nursing home owners if they don't take them, and they don't, and, 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 and that they, they would lose their licenses. And the threat of blackmail, they took them in. 40% of the deaths in New York State, over 11,000 people died, was 40% was, was in nursing homes, directly due to Governor Cuomo and to his Dr. Mengele, Howard Zucker, who works for him, takes his orders. We have a mayor in this city who is a communist, a leftist communist, who has no regard for business people. He allowed rioters to destroy Macy's, destroy all the stores on 5th Avenue, Madison Avenue. He did not let the police stop them. Looting, destruction, firebombs, and to this very day, they're under threat. People in the stores are being robbed in the stores. There are people wilding in the stores. I have that information. So I appeal to you, President Trump and Attorney General Barr, we have no protection here. Uh, the city is totally, totally anarchy, in, anarchy, in a state of anarchy. You have already proclaimed that New York City is a city that is in terror. 
and now we'd like you to take action and do something to sue the mayor and sue the governor and stop them from conducting this soft program against our community. You're not being allowed to pray in our synagogues. You've already taken action in Washington, D.C. to protect the churches there from the mayor over there. And we'd like you to come here and do the same thing. We are not allowed uh, to open our schools and our yeshivas and our Beisakov schools for our girls. We're being deprived of an education. Our children are wandering the streets and being destroyed. In Jew Jewish thought, this is called Pikuach Nefesh. Godel Hamachtiel Yosem in To kill a person spiritually is worse than to kill him physically. And our children are being killed spiritually by these restrictions, by these lockdowns. And the governor says that, well, it's because I love you. The mayor says, it's tough love. We love the Jewish community. We're doing it for your own good. Oh, really? You're doing it for our own good? Everybody knows. Uh, Dr. Gupta of Oxford University has stated very clearly with her two colleagues around the world, masks do not work. The pores in the mask, the pores in this mask are 400 times larger than the size of the virus. How can they possibly filter the virus? When you put on the mask, there's holes on top, holes on the bottom, holes on the side. This mask is junk. It's garbage. It's BS. What is the purpose of the mask? The purpose of the mask is to get you to comply, to scare you. Hermann Goering of the Third Reich was asked at the Nuremberg trial, how did you get the German people to do this terrible, horrible holocausts? He says, it's easy. You just scare them. You inflict terror. The mask is a tool of terror. You look around you, everybody's wearing a mask. Oh, God, our lives are in danger. We have to do whatever the governor says, whatever the mayor says, and your mind is frozen. You can't think straight. Who is this governor who cares about us? This is the man who made a, a regulation, an executive order, dictatorial executive order. Nursing homes in New York State must take in people from the hospitals who are stricken with COVID-19 and bring them into a population of vulnerable people who are weak, who haven't got strong immune systems. He was warned by emails from the nursing home operators, you're going to kill our people. Don't do it. And he said, if you, he had, he had a conference call with his, his Dr. Mengele, Howard Zucker, if you don't follow my executive order, you're going to lose your license. I'm going to take away your business. You'll be poor. You'll be impoverished. And so under blackmail, they followed his orders, and 40% of the deaths in New York State, over 11,000 elderly people, died. Not died. They were murdered intentionally. There was only one nursing home operator in New Jersey where they also made a similar law. An Orthodox Jew who asked his rabbi and said, should I comply with this law? You're going to kill my people. He said, no. You have no right to make a living by killing your people. If they take away a license, so be it. So he did not listen. He defied the governor. And you know what? He was the only nursing home in New Jersey where no one died because he cared about human life and he respected his rabbi who told him that he must not murder people. And so that's the governor, mass murdering psychopath. He wants, he cares about us, he loves us. If you believe that, then I have a bridge in Brooklyn that I would like to sell you 
for a very good price. It's called the Brooklyn Bridge. And we have a mayor. A mayor who lets wild people destroy the city. He says he has tough love for our community. Tough love? He's a communist. He doesn't care about business people. He wants to destroy our businesses in Borough Park, close them, and choke them to death so they don't have any business. Half of the restaurants in New York State are closed and will never reopen. They've been totally destroyed. The business people have been destroyed. Don't tell me it's about health because the masks don't work. Don't tell me about that. So how come we don't see cases of people telling me and you, or anyone, Oh, I wore a mask every time. I always wash my hands. And you see, I got COVID anyway. Where are all those people? Well, the people who have masks do get COVID. Uh, Rabbi Yeshua Salvechik has a yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael. And he said he does not observe the lockdowns. In his yeshiva, he says the boys can do whatever they please. The only boys in his yeshiva who became sick with COVID was one boy who was wearing a mask and another boy who was hiding in the dormitory under lockdown. They were the ones who got sick. The boys who were learning Torah and didn't observe these, these silly things did not get sick. But what were they doing? I'm sure they were doing something. They were just careful, washing their hands. Or well, they washed their hands. All right, the normal proportions. All right, that's normal, fine. Normal halacha. You that's know, just fine. That's normal halacha. But you have to understand, these people don't care about you. They're not worried about you. you. Another indication is, if the mayor really and truly believes that social distancing is important and masks are important, why did he address a Black Lives Matter rally in Brooklyn, over a thousand people, packed together like sardines, and the mayor lecturing to them without a mask? If he really thought that they would die, would he have done that? Well, the answer may, well is, maybe he doesn't care about them either. No, he does care about them because they, those are his troops. Those are his people, leftist communists. He does care about them. And his daughter, by the way, was also part of that group. The answer is, these politicians know that this mask is baloney, social distancing is baloney, You're, everybody's going to get COVID-19. The only solution, the only real solution is what Dr. Zelenko said. Stay out of the hospital by taking hydroxychloroquine as a preventive prophylactic together with zinc, which will kill the virus. And you must do it in the first five days. Don't give me these phony studies where you gave hydroxy to someone in the hospital who was half dead. Of course it doesn't work then. It has to be done in the first five days as soon as you feel anything. Your scent of smell is bothering you. You have problems. Or if you can't get hydroxy because the governor of our state has restricted it and has told the pharmacists they will lose their licenses and the doctors will lose their licenses if they dare to prescribe this life-saving drug, this very compassionate governor of ours. If you can't get it, use quercetin with vitamin C together with your zinc and that will also prevent your getting stage two of the coronavirus, which kicks in after five days. After five days, you get organ damage. So therefore, Dr. Zelenko says he doesn't wait for proof of any kind or testing of any kind. As soon as someone has symptoms, he immediately starts them on the drug as a prophylactic, just like President Trump did when he took the drug. He wasn't sick a few months ago, it was a month ago. He just took it for prevention, that's all. And you can do that. And how is it that all these doctors that are treating hundreds of patients, they don't get sick? What's their secret? Well, they said their secret at the press conference 
of the frontline doctors in Washington that was not covered adequately by the media and censored, the doctor said, I take as a prophylactic hydroxychloroquine twice a week. And so do the doctors in India and all over the world and many world leaders. And that keeps them out of trouble. It does not allow the virus to replicate. So I say to the governor and the mayor, you are a bunch of fakes, phonies and frauds. You don't care about people. On the contrary, you are psychopathic murderers of people and you're psychopathic murderers of their businesses and their livelihoods. Many people have committed suicide, thank God not in the Jewish community, uh, because they lost their livelihoods and their businesses that they worked their entire lives for because of these crazy lockdowns that don't work. The only solution is what Dr. Zelenko has told you. Make sure everybody has access to these drugs which prevent the replication of the virus. Hydroxychloroquine, zinc, Vitamin C, vitamin D is also helpful, and even NAC, N-acetylcysteine, which prevents one of the problems that comes up with COVID, which is coagulation of the drugs. You you have a you have a you have you have problems with with with, with blood clots, and NAC, N-acetylcysteine breaks up these blood clots, prevents you from getting heart attacks and and, and strokes. So I advise you people. Do what Dr. Zelenko has said. He's had thousands of patients. He's being consulted by governments all over the world, including now the government of Israel and Vice President Pence. And he has said, in his practice, nobody goes to the hospital. He gets things done in the first five days so that people will stay out of the hospital. The hospital is a dangerous place. Originally, they were murdering people with ventilators, blowing up their lungs with too much pressure. Now, I'm just hearing cases where people go into the hospital and they don't even get a drink of water for 12 hours. They're starving them. They're making them weak. That is still going on? It's still going on. I just got a report today. Hospitals are not giving water. They're treating people like garbage. So I warn you, stay out of the hospital. Take these preventive measures. And more importantly, I want to close again. Please, President Trump, and please, Vice uh, Attorney General Barr, you're already taking action in Washington, D.C. against Mayor Boz Bosner, I think her name is, who she, she's closing down churches, okay? Because you say the First Amendment gives us religious rights, and you can't simply take away people's right to practice their religion because of some medical extremism. This medical extremism, these folk, fake, phony, fraud medical data, you're using testing to show that people are sick. The tests are PCR tests. The head of Pfizer Laboratories, one of the heads of Pfizer Laboratories, wrote a long article, 13 pages, I printed it out, and he said, in our laboratory, we use PCR tests very critical way because it works by amplification. You amplify the slightest indication to bring it up. This is very hard to control and it's definitely not to be used in clinical situations with human beings because if you had a cold three months ago, we're going to amplify that little corona from the cold and tell you you're testing positive when you're perfectly healthy. The only reason this testing is being pushed by Governor Cuomo, we have a, we have a, a testing center here on 40th Street and Fort Hamilton Parkway is because it empowers him and it empowers the, the mayor. And there's a lot of money involved also. They're money making involved money. Too. 
but because of these tests, they can go to the media and say, oh, we're having so many cases, and therefore it's critical. And in the minds of people who are not too knowledgeable, a case means death, which it is not. It means you were tested positive for a PCR test that is 90% not accurate. So therefore, notice the change. When they started in March, they said hospitalizations. We're going, now it's we're cases. We're going to monitor deaths, the number of deaths. Right. Well, deaths, right? And it was the deaths, deaths hospitalizations. Down, now it's we're cases. To, we're going to stop. Well, now when the cases. deaths went down in July, they were almost <coughs> zero. We're near zero now with deaths. They can't use that as an excuse for their military law, for their for their emergency powers that they have now as dictatorship. But well, they still want to be dictators. They still want to do what they want to do. So, they, okay, we'll change the goalpost now. Now it's going to be hospitalizations. And now it's going to be just testing positive. Don't be fools. Do not close the yeshivas. Do not close the girls' schools. If we all stand together, as Benjamin Franklin said, either we hang together or we will hang separately. That's my message to the Jewish community. Stop being bullied by bullies. Stop it and go to the President of the United States and Attorney General Barr. Agudis Yisrael has Abba Cohen. He has. They have a, a lobbyist there who is well, well connected. Go there and bring them in here, just like they're doing in Washington, D.C. And let's stop this, this soft program against our community. Thank you very much. Wow. I have to say, I admire him. I lied. I love him. He he he. You know he speaks his mind. I like this guy. I like this rabbi. He really he really is good. Well, uh, I'm going to end it here. Uh, I'm glad I was able to do this podcast with you guys. Um, thank you very much. And remember, uh, please vote, vote uh, Trump, and please, please uh, say your rosary, pray, and. Uh, I'll remember me in your prayers. God bless.